Good morning, everyone. It feels like we've uh, been gone from the book of Judges for like uh, a month. So let me give you a quick recap of the book of Judges up through chapter 7, or up to chapter 7. Is my mic working? Yes? No? No? My voice always sounds loud to me anyway. So, yes? No? Yes. Excellent. All right. Wow, it just sounded different. But to recap and bring us up to speed about what's happening in the book of Judges, very simple, very easy to understand. Israel is falling away from God at every opportunity they can. They are compromising left and right with everything. Everything is a compromise to them. And so God raises up a judge. A judge leads them into victory and says, get back on the right path. Stop worshiping idols. Get rid of all the compromise in your life. Marry within the faith. Don't marry outside of the faith. And life will be good. And so life for the next 40 years is really good for them until that judge dies and that generation then forgets everything about God and they go back to pagan ways of worshiping false gods, foreign gods, and compromise. At least with the book of Judges up to chapter 6, that was the cycle. In comes chapter 6 and Gideon is raised up and Gideon becomes this amazing weak general. He's amazingly weak. He is scared at every point and turn. He is afraid of his own shadow. And he keeps asking God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And God says, yes, I'll help you. I will give you every assurance you need. I will hold you tightly. I will encourage you. I will give you victory. I will give you leadership skills. And people will recognize it and people will follow you. And this entire time, all of these events are happening in the very far northeast part of Israel. That would be that entire area up near 25 and Dillon Road. Everything happening over there, which there's not a lot right now happening over there, but I imagine one day that's going to be filled between Springs and, and Pueblo. But it's all happening right there, and they are excited about the potential of kicking out the Midianites from their land, once and for all, kicking out the Midianites. And Gideon has just been encouraged through a miraculous sign of fleece and dew and wetness on the ground and non-wetness on the ground at the end of chapter 6, and the army is ready to go triumphantly to take on the Midianites and rid them from their land completely. There's been a turn in religion, and people are excited about worshiping God again. They've tore down one idol. They're going to tear down even more, and they are at the eve of battle. Battle is about to happen, and in comes verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So the setting is there. They are ready to go to battle. They are excited. They are pumped. There's over 30,000 troops that have answered the call to help Gideon fight the Midianites. And then we get into verse 2. Verse 2 probably is a shock to Gideon. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand 
has saved me. I've never been in the military. I've never gone to war. I've uh, had fights in my life, but they weren't military fights. But I've always known, even as a kid, it's always good to have more people have your back. It's always better to outnumber your foes. It's always better to have 12 men on the field instead of 11. It's always better to have five tanks than three tanks. It's always better to have more than less. And God tells Gideon, we've got a problem. Everyone answered your call. Everyone came to your aid. Everyone heard you and are following you. You're an amazing leader, but we got a problem. You got too many fighters, too many people in the military, too many people in your army right now. And he tells them why. Because I have a feeling, God says, that if I give you victory over the Midianites, you are going to boast that you are the champions, that somehow you became the ones who overcame the Midianites, and my name, the Lord, Jehovah, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, becomes a wash. It becomes a footnote. Oh, yeah, and God was with us. You're going to take the credit. You're going to boast about it. I think we've all met people in our lives who love to boast about their accomplishments. They love to boast about what they did in grade school. They love to boast about the accomplishment in high school. They love to boast about this or that, and it was 50 years ago. But yet you know if you bring up football, they're going to say, well, there was a game that I played against South, and I ran, and I scored four touchdowns. You remember that day? No, I don't, but there's black and white pictures that show you raising your hand 50 years ago. We get it. You had a great game. But even if you were the one who scored four touchdowns and your name was in the paper if you played football, who really won the game? The entire team. The entire team won the game. Not just you, but the entire team. And so God looks at this and says, I think the team is going to take the credit. And all the eyes are going to be on the team, but I'm the one who gave you victory. I don't want any bragging. God never shares his glory. Never. God never shares his victory. It is his glory. It is his victory from the very beginning. He may use us in the process But using us in the process does not give us bragging rights. And God knew the hearts of his people. These are his people, just like we are his people. He knows our hearts. And he says, if you've gained victory over something, you're going to take the credit. You're going to think to yourself, I did it. Yes, it's me. You see, that reminds me of the story in 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel is asked by God to pick the next king. And, he's gonna, and Samuel's going to look at Saul and say, oh, man, he's awesome. He's big, he's tall, he's taller than the average Israelite. He's strong, he's a great leader, he's got great charisma. People are going to follow him and love him. And God says to Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance. I'm not interested in the outward appearance, I'm interested in the heart. I'm interested in something you can't see. You're going to see this victory, Israel, and you're going to take credit for it, but it really is me the entire time. I'm the one who's giving you victory. There is no room for bragging in God's kingdom. 
I've told you before that there was a church that I had preached at several times as a seminary student. And if there was anything that we should avoid at all costs, it is bragging about ourselves through plaques and monuments in a church. Remember I told you that the offering plate even had people's names on it who donated the offering plate. So every time you gave an offering, you thought you were giving it to this person because that was their plate. And they had their rows, their windows, their doors. Even the bathroom doors had donated in memory of so-and-so and someone's name on the bathroom door. So every time you went into the bathroom, you're like, wow, that was uncomfortable and weird. Everything was about them. Everything was about them. Never once did I see a plaque in those hundreds of plaques, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of plaques throughout that church did it say, because of God. Because of God. Everyone wanted to take their own slice of glory. Everyone wanted their own acknowledgement. Everyone wanted to be praised for their bit of work. No acknowledgement of God. God knows our heart wants to be prideful. God knows that we want the attention, that we want the acknowledgement, that we want the pat on the back, that we want the praise and the glory. And God says, it's not yours. It's mine. I am the one who should be praised and thanked and held up and esteemed and acknowledged and recognized and worshipped. Not you. So Gideon hears this, and so God takes the next step because Gideon is blindsided by this, like, okay, we have too many people. I don't hear anyone bragging yet. We're going into a fight. I want as many people as possible, and God says, I'm going to show you the difference between my odds and human odds. And so in the next few verses, God solves the problem that they have too many people. He says in verse 3, Now therefore because I don't want to share my glory and I don't want people to boast. Now, therefore, in the ears of the people, say this. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of the people said, yeah, you know what? I was pumped up, Gideon, when you first said, hey, let's do this. But, you know, looking around, I'm... Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the way out. I'm, I'm going to go home. So God gives him a pass. Gideon gives him a pass. If you're not ready to fight and battle, then go home. Two-thirds of Gideon's army leaves. How do you think Gideon at that very moment felt? Scared. Absolutely scared. He wanted 22,000 more people to show up. Instead, he loses two-thirds of his army with one motivational speech. If you're scared, go home. And they go home. Now he's got only 10,000 men to fight the, Midian, the Midianite army. God comes to him again, though, in verse 4 and says, Listen, Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And if any one of them whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, they'll go with you. And anyone who says, I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. Probably not the encouragement that Gideon wanted to hear 
you still have too many, and we're going to go down to the water and we're going to give them a test. Anyone who passes the test, they're your warriors. If they don't pass the test, they're out. Gideon's probably thinking, we need another recruiting <laughs> moment because this recruiting thing is not going the right way. We're losing people, and 10,000 people are too many? I don't know of any general who said 10,000 people are too many to take on an army, probably close to 100,000. I mean, we, we want the odds in our favor, not in their favor. And so God brings this test to them in verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him aside. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped and uh, with their hands uh, to their mouth was 300 men, but the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, it, uh, I will save you and give you into the hands of the Midianites. And let all the others go down, it let ev all the others go every man to his own home. So the people took possessions, uh, provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent out the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but returned with 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So the imagery, this is only going to happen once. So pay attention and watch. He sends them down to the river. And God gives him a very simple test. The one who goes down to the river and simply does this. Those are your guys. The guys that go down to the river like this. Those are the guys you send home. Did everybody get that? Yeah. All right, good, thanks. Because I was going to do that once and that already... That tired me out. Let's, let's take a break. And I even practiced that beforehand. Oh, we didn't get that for the video. I got to do it again? Got to do it again? Okay. So, but think of this from a military standpoint. Again, I told you I'm not in the military, but I've read lots of books. The books tell me the people who are attentive to their surroundings are not going to lower their eyes. They're going to keep their eyes central and focused on the area around them. And that was basically the 300 guys who were just sticking water like this, lapping it up like a dog. Not going down to the river and licking, because people and dogs lick totally different. But the idea of it is that same urgency and quickness of a dog just taking water and lapping it up. That's who you want. You don't want the person who's going to kneel down lower their head, and slowly drink the water. And it got whittled down to 300 warriors who went back to their tents. I know Gideon at this moment is really freaking out because God does something incredibly encouraging for Gideon that is out of left field in the next set of verses. Starting in verse 9, uh, that same night, and this is a long passage here, this is pretty much to the end of uh, our section that we're going through, verse 18. He says this, that very same night, the Lord said to him, that is to Gideon, arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. All right, 
This is really opposite of an encouraging speech because you have already whittled my crew, my army, from 32,000 people to 300, and now's the moment you want me to go against the camp? And then he says in verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, I raise my hand, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. So it is right-hand man. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were at the camp. So the scenario is, that evening of the battle, God says, Gideon, go do it. You got it. But if you're afraid, just take one guy with you and go to the outpost. And I'm guessing that like every military camp, they had couple people on the outskirts to kind of warn them, oh, so-and-so's coming, they're coming, they're coming. So they had some outposts just surrounding the camp of Midianites, which was down in the valley. And so Gideon and his buddy, they just kind of go up to one of the outposts and listen. That's what they're supposed to be doing. So in verse uh, 12, it says, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, and the sand that, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance, so that the seashore demonstrate or shows its abundance. Basically, they're saying, as Gideon and Pura go up to this camp and really take a view of it, they can't count how many people they're going to fight. Now, they know how many people they got. How many people does Gideon have? 300, and I'll, I'll admit it's 301, okay, because Gideon is there too. You got 301 people against perhaps a little bit of exaggeration. We couldn't even count the camels. There were so many men. It's like this sand on the seashore. Oh, and that is how oftentimes we approach problems in our life. The sky is falling. Oh, the world is ending. Oh, me. And everyone from the outside goes, okay, there, there might be 100,000. It's, it's not what you're trying to make it out to be. And so Gideon is fearful because he is seeing with his perspective an insurmountable army. And he's got 300 men and himself. 301 people. But he goes in verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, so these are, these are the Midianites. Gideon and his uh, right-hand man, Purah, they're listening to this conversation. So one guy's talking to another guy as they're just waiting around to see if anyone's coming. Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down that the tent lay flat. That's a weird dream, but it makes perfect sense. A loaf of bread rolls down a hill, hits the tent, the tent collapses, and it's laid flat. I don't know how Gideon's going to get any encouragement out of this until the interpretation comes in the next verse. Oh, and his comrade answered, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given his hand God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Well, I don't know how he got that interpretation from that. It was God. But the guards understood something. The dream predicted 
Israel would be victorious over Midian. And it is as if a roll of bread destroyed the entire tent of Israel. I don't have a roll with me, but if you can imagine a donut that we have outside, how much damage throwing that donut at this building, how much damage would it cause? Reality, nothing, right? I mean, you'd get crumbs everywhere, but the donut would be destroyed. The building would just need a vacuum, clean it up. But in the mind of those guards, it was crystal clear. I know what the dream means. The dream means something insignificant, small, is going to destroy all of Midian. This is the Midianites talking among themselves. Gideon and his right-hand man, Pura, listened to the story, the dream and the interpretation, because by the dream itself, it made no sense. But now the interpretation is, okay, something small and insignificant is going to destroy Midian, and the Midianites identify that small, insignificant thing as being Gideon. So as soon as Gideon heard this, verse 15, the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. His response was worship. Why would Gideon respond with worship? Because Gideon knew that everything happening here was way outside of his comfort zone and way outside of his control. It was being managed and directed by God himself that even the Midianites now were living in this reality of absolute fear and terror of Gideon and his small little group of dog-drinking-water people coming and attacking this mighty fortress of Gideon. The Gideonites already knew it was hopeless. They're doomed. They're done away with. And Gideon worshipped. He worshiped because he saw God in action. He worshiped because he saw God's hand of protection, his hand of greatness, his hand of power. He knew that God was in control and that even though he only had 300 people, it was the hand of God that would bring them victory. And he could have had one person and he would have been fine. He worshiped. When he saw God's mighty hand being revealed, he worshiped. He worshiped. He humbly acknowledged who his source of victory was going to be. He was going to be God, not himself. Not the 300, not the 32,000, not even one. God was going to bring the victory. And so he worshipped. And then he returned to the camp and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. The number of times in those short verses God's hand is mentioned is seven times. Throughout all of this, the theme of this is God will deliver them into your hands. God will deliver. God will deliver. God will deliver. God will deliver. You see an insurmountable army in front of you, Gideon? God will deliver. God will deliver. God will deliver. It's by his hand 
It's as if he is already reciting what Zechariah 4, 6 says. It's not by might, not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. You want victory in your life? Stop working for it and worship God and say, help. Stop trying to be the hero in your spiritual life and say, God, I can't be the hero in my life. You need to be the hero in, your, in my life. Stop and worship before the mighty God of creation. We sang that song, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, that idea of the person in our lives that gives us victory is not ourselves. It's God. He makes straight the path. He brings the miracle. It's his power, his might, his spirit that brings us victory, not just for Gideon over physical enemies, but for us in our own spiritual battles. The one who gives us strength is Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, I can do all things through my mighty determination and power as an American. No. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Christ. Gideon learned that lesson in a physical way. If I want victory over the Midianites, I need to trust God. And I need to brag about him. I need to acknowledge him and worship him. It all starts with that. I've said it a thousand times, and I'll say it ten more thousand times. Standing with God alone makes you the majority. If you stand with God and you're the only one standing with God, you are in a good, safe place. Because God is the majority. God is the power. He is the right he is the goodness. He is the truth. And standing with him, even if you're alone or with thousands, you are in a good, safe place, the right place when you're standing with God. When you stand against him, if you stand with 100,000, you are in trouble because it will only take a donut to knock you over. And you're done. Insignificant roll of bread can destroy you. But with God, it doesn't matter if you feel like an insignificant donut because God will give you victory because he makes straight that path to victory. So Gideon goes back, divides his men into three companies, just divides them 100, 100, 100, and puts trumpets into their hands, all of them. I imagine they were thinking they'd be better off with swords. I'm just thinking. But no, he gives them trumpets, puts it into the hands with empty jars and puts torches in the jars. You know, I've, I've seen lots of war movies. Um, I've yet to see trumpets, torches, and jars be heralded as the means of gaining victory in war. But God is the one who's giving them victory. Not swords, not military power, not sneakiness, God is. And so sometimes he uses very unusual things and ways to demonstrate he's in control. He's the one who's giving victory. He's the one who has power. And then Gideon says, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 
So we have the entire game plan that Gideon's going to do that God gave him. Make lots of noise and ruckus. Break your jars. Let them see the lights. Let them hear the trumpets and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I don't know what happens next. I haven't read that far along in the story. So next week, that is exactly what we're going to pick up. I have no idea. Is Gideon going to win? Is Gideon going to lose? Is God going to give them the victory over the Midianites? What are they actually going to do with the trumpets? How is that going to confuse 100,000 people? You've got to come back next week because that's what we're going to pick up. I'll study it this week. We'll figure it out. I think we'll probably go through the end of the chapter. Um, I imagine, and this is just, I think, how this is going to play out. I imagine something really cool is going to happen in the next set of verses. But we're not going to find out until next week. Oh, you know, I, oh, I don't want to tell you not to read Scripture, but you can read ahead if you want, but don't tell me. Don't text me tomorrow and say, hey, Tim, I know what happened. Oh, don't tell me. I want to be just as excited and surprised as you are next Sunday at 10.30 when we pick it up. But because we do need to have some application today, I want to look very quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27 as we close. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, be helpful if I got to there so I can talk about it. Uh, we read the following verses. Paul says this to the church. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Oh, and by the way, I meant to tell you that this is going to be my ending pep talk verse for us. Consider yourself, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is humbling to consider ourselves weak, to consider ourselves foolish, to consider ourselves of no reputation. But next to you, Father, your holiness, your brilliance, your righteousness drowns us out, as it should. You are the star of our life, of every step we take. You are the one whom we need every moment, every hour, every second. We need you, Father, more and more so that we might worship at your foot, at your throne. Father, let us be like Gideon, and every time we recognize your greatness, we fall in worship. Father, we acknowledge we need you. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, amen.